News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. As we know, leaders are gathering again in Brussels for three major summits discussing the war in Ukraine as that conflict marks one month. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is taking part in those meetings with NATO and G7 counterparts, looking at what further actions can be taken against Russia as that invasion continues. Well, global European correspondent Redmond Shannon joins us now from London to talk more about this. Redmond, thank you so much for being with us. Good morning, Jill. Let's talk about what's on the agenda and what's happening with the leaders at the summit today. Yeah, well, three summits, uh, actually, of course, it's it's an extraordinary uh, gathering of leaders. We have the NATO summit of the 30 NATO members, including Canada, the United States and many European countries, uh, Turkey, too, is part of NATO, trying to agree what it will do. We then have the G7 countries, Canada, part of that as well. A summit of that will happen after the NATO summit. And then finally, there will be a European Council meeting. That is the 27 uh, heads of government of the EU. So a lot of the overlap there. Um, and these three summits happening in one city, Brussels, on the same day in order to coordinate a united response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, which is now exactly one month ago. So expect uh, more announcements on aid packages, on uh, military placements. Jens Stoltenberg, the Secretary General of NATO, yesterday said he expects an agreement to be put in place to add four battle groups to four of the eastern members of NATO closer to the border with Ukraine and closer to Russia. Expect more on perhaps armaments to be sent to uh, Ukraine and uh, how far that will go in terms of um, uh, extra movements of troops um, from what uh, countries like Poland want in terms of a peacekeeping force. Well, that will be very contentious, and that's the sort of details that will be hammered out in in these summits today. And uh, it won't be easy because there are so many countries involved. So uh, expect um, some perhaps uh, difficult negotiations, but we'll find out later what uh, what these leaders agree. Uh, you mentioned peacekeepers, and certainly that has been one of the, the top issues and military placements and whether or not even putting peacekeepers near Ukraine would lead to an escalation, I suppose, in what Vladimir Putin is doing. Yeah, well, obviously there are NATO troops in these NATO countries, many of which border Russia, and these NATO placement of troops, um, specific NATO placements, um, have... Uh, according to Russia, provoked it into doing this. And this is something that it wants to see NATO roll back on. But the opposite is happening. NATO is looks like placing more troops and more battle groups closer to Russia when Russia wants the opposite. And Russia wants, well, what ultimately what Russia wants is NATO to remove the eastern members like uh, Lithuania, Latvia, uh, uh, and Romania from from its uh, membership and uh, ultimately absolutely doesn't want Ukraine to become part of NATO. And this is what Russia says is central to the reason why it has taken its so-called special operation, which is an invasion. Um, it, it doesn't want NATO to to admit Ukraine. Ukraine says it wants to be able to have the freedom to do so. But we are in a war situation now, and it's all about what NATO, how NATO reacts 
whether NATO acting more strongly will only worsen the situation or will it pull Russia back by threatening Russia's security. It's an it's, it's extremely d- difficult uh, decision for every leader who's involved in these negotiations, and it's a very difficult thing for so many countries to agree on a united strategy. And we know uh, that the Prime Minister obviously is there with other uh, leaders, uh, with uh, his counterparts as well. Canada very much considered a friend to Ukraine. What are we hearing from Ukrainian President Zelensky as far as his statements speaking to uh, those who are gathered at these summits? Yes, well, uh, Zelensky will speak to the NATO and G7 summits and uh, appeal to the leaders for more pressure to be uh, exerted on Russia for more help. Um, Zelensky uh, said quite pointedly in a video statement issued last night that we will find out today who are our friends and who have betrayed us. Very strong language, but he the stakes are very high for Ukraine. He also issued a statement in English, unusually. He's um, English. He doesn't uh, crack it out very often, but when he does, he, he can he can speak English quite well. And he's appealing to the people of the world on today, the one-month anniversary, to wear Ukrainian colors, to show solidarity with Ukraine. And that, from his point of view, would potentially ramp up the pressure on leaders of countries around the world in order to do more. So Zelensky is uh, yet again calling for this no-fly zone. Would we expect him to call from for this to happen again today? Uh, expect NATO to say we can't go that far. But he'll keep asking, and he'll keep asking for military aid as well. So we'll probably hear something about military aid, but not a no-fly zone. Right, and, and not a huge surprise there. It is, uh, when, you st- when you say that, uh, with him asking people to wear the colors and to really uh, stand with Ukraine, it is certainly different watching, on the one hand, the NATO summit and movement trying to be made there, and then just seeing some of the images and what's happening on the ground, as you mentioned, one month in, uh, in that country, and just the devastation. The images, the video that comes through uh, that many people will have seen on TV, on social media, are horrific. And what's going on in Mariupol, we're, we, we can't see very much of what's happening there, but we have some footage of what's what it's like, and particularly satellite footage, uh, photos and videos, but some from the ground too. Um, there was footage from a convoy of buses and cars uh, from Tuesday night, which made it out about 300 buses and cars. The trauma that these people, you can see, have suffered uh, sort of tells its own story. You don't need to see Mariupol to see how difficult it has been on these people and what they've been through, food, water, electricity, all running out, Uh, tens of thousands of people stuck in in Mariupol. Other cities, too, that aren't completely surrounded like Mariupol, um, facing similar problems like uh, Kherson, uh, uh, Melitopol, these other cities um, facing shortages because there is a war because it's so difficult to to um, provide supplies. Uh, the suffering going on in Ukraine is something that we're getting probably a hint of right now, but only uh, in the weeks and months to come will we really learn more and more about how difficult the situation is today in these in these places. All right, Redmond, thank you so much for joining us again and bringing us up to date on this. Appreciate it. Thank you, Jill. Have a good day. Bye. That is Redmond Shannon, Global News European correspondent. He is located in London, and we will keep tabs and keep you updated as to what is happening at that summit. 
This is Mornings with Simi. Jill Bennett sitting in for Simi this week. Well, the provincial government is investing just slightly more than $8 million in legal aid in B.C., filling what it says are gaps in that service. The Ministry of the Attorney General announced the funding, saying that the legal aid system between 2019 and 2021, they took a look at that, and that's where they found there were there were these gaps. So what does this mean for legal aid? Michael Klein joins us now, criminal lawyer and director of the Criminal Defense Advocacy Society of B.C. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, you're quite welcome. Uh, slight correction. I'm one of the directors of Criminal Defense Advocacy Society. All right. I'm not the director, but <laughs> I don't want to. I don't want to ruffle anybody as anybody's feathers in that regard. All right. No. No problem. My my apologies. I, I promoted no, no you there to uh, to top director, but uh, I will stand corrected. Uh, talk if, uh, a bit about the gaps in legal aid. What are the main issues with funding, and what's needed for the legal aid system? Well, I I, I come from a criminal uh, defense perspective, and in that. The gap there is that uh, some people just don't qualify for legal aid, um, and they're uh, left to navigate a, a criminal justice system on their own. Um, uh, the same is uh, true for some family uh, uh, law cases as well. So, and I guess if we draw back and think about it, if you have some value, place some value on the on the judicial or justice system, um, it needs investment from time to time. Um, uh, one of the things I think. Uh, I can say, and I think most uh, judges and Crown Counsel will agree, is that unrepresented people in a criminal justice system really slow that system down significantly. The law is complex. Um, people are, are left who are left to navigate it on their own uh, will struggle, and then the burden is shifted onto Crown Counsel and judges to make up for that uh, um, inefficiency. So um, I think this funding will assist with that in terms of granting more coverage to people as well. One of the other issues that arises, I think, uh, in in my profession in terms of criminal defense um, is that we have a, a bunch of junior lawyers that aren't paid all that well and can't get onto large, larger files and act as or, or be mentored uh, by senior counsel. And it, I think it's a creates a bit of a gap with regard to experience and experience helps move the system along. Um, it's just like anything else. The more experience you have, the more efficient you could become. So I think uh, these, this funding will address uh, at least a couple of those concerns. Uh, you mentioned one, so a lot of people that don't qualify for legal aid. Is that because of, of the cutoff or what the requirements are to qualify? Yeah, there's uh, seriousness of the offense and income are usually the uh, qualifiers. And uh, a lot of people, uh, it, it may not be the most serious offense in the world, but once again, if they're left to uh, uh, swim through the criminal justice system on their own, um, it, it, it really bogs the system down. So um, expanding eligibility uh, would be a great thing. Hopefully some of this funding can do that. And I think what we'd like to see is is have a, as many people as possible represented um, uh, in the criminal justice system and in, in the family law system.
Uh, I, I saw that, so the ministry said that part of the funding will go to what you touched on, saying that about three and a half million of that funding will be used to make sure that junior counsel are assigned in all murder and manslaughter cases and to provide a certain number of hours for expert witnesses in criminal cases and support to families. Do you think that will make a difference? Oh, I think it will make a, a significant difference. Uh, as I said, you know, um, uh, Vancouver is a pretty expensive city, uh, and British Columbia is pretty expensive as well. And uh, you know, people go to law school; they spend, uh, they invest a lot of, lot of time and money getting through law school, and then to come out of law school, lots of people would like to practice criminal law, but it's just economically unviable. Um, and once again, I think that just is creating a gap in experience, uh, and we need to have sort of the next generation come along, and they need to be mentored and um, uh, transition from junior counsel to senior counsel, and hopefully some of this funding will assist with that. And when you talk about younger lawyers and younger lawyers getting that experience and working their way up that ladder, does it have to be a passion or a calling to do that through legal aid or to be drawn to the legal aid system? I, I, I think um, if you're a capable lawyer and you go into criminal law, you're probably leaving a lot of money on the table uh, rather than going into another area of law, uh, which could be far more lucrative. And and so does that, will that help, do you think, then make it more enticing for people if, if they realize that the funding is there or it's a better funded system? I, I think so. I hope so. I, I mean, that's, I think that's the goal of it is, I mean, there's, there, it's twofold, right? The other, the other aspect of this is that in large complex cases, uh, just because of the, the way that uh, in our digital age, uh, uh, documents are generated, I would say documents are probably 10 times as greater as they were 20 years ago. And that's because of the digital age. So things are easier to produce digitally and then they all have to be collated and put together. So a lot of investigations get very, very large and complicated. So junior counsel have a practical effect on that in that there's a share of the workload. The byproduct of that, and I think the most important byproduct of that, is uh, not only are you assisting uh, with a large uh, case uh, uh, and moving that through the uh, justice system, but as well, the junior lawyer is gaining experience uh, being mentored by the senior lawyer. And, And as I say, I think that's critical for the development of the law and to make sure that the next generation of criminal defense lawyers are are adequately prepared. Uh, There was also talk about money that's going to be used for when we're talking about the criminal early uh, resolution. Uh, And I I guess kind of not obviously in the most serious cases, not talking about things like murder or manslaughter, but is there enough attention paid to uh, trying to find conflict resolution or trying to find ways to resolve things before they get to the courts or before they become very expensive and time-consuming cases? Well, I, I, I think what it is is, is um, uh, restructuring the, a little bit of legal aid so that there's um, uh, money is allocated to have uh, lawyers look at a resolution, an early resolution, and spend time with that. And uh, historically, that's, the funding for that has not been as good as it might be. Um, and... Uh, it just would allow the lawyer to have some time and be paid for that time uh, to review the, the case in, and look at the potential for a disposition. And um, uh, I think that 
you know, obviously that's going to uh, uh, create more, once again, more efficiencies in the system. If we can weed out cases that ought not to be going to trial, um, that there's a, a resolution available, um, uh, that should be pursued. So if there's funding for that, um, that's going to enhance the system significantly. And and just one other point to, to that as well. Will this make a difference immediately or is there a backlog? When do you see things or, or see the benefits of this funding? When will we see those? You know, I, 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 I don't know. I, I, it's hard to say how long it would take. I, you know, I, I mean, the, the sort of the lag time is for most cases winding their way through the justice system are, you know, anywhere from four to four months to a year. Um, so maybe maybe that's a, a, a an educated guess as to when we might see some uh, tangible effects. All right. Michael Klein, great to chat with you about this this morning. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, you're quite welcome. Thank you. That is Michael Klein, criminal lawyer and a director at the Criminal Defense Advocacy Society in BC. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, the COVID-19 pandemic, in addition to everything else healthcare workers have to deal with, is leading to a lot of burnout. One third of workers that were part of a survey told or said that they expected to leave the profession within the next two years. That is a finding, part of a telephone survey. It was done of more than 800 members of the hospital employees union. And again, they said they experienced pandemic-related burnout. And one in three said that they don't believe there are adequate mental health supports in the workplace. Well, we wanted to talk more about this. And joining us now is Dr. Ramnik Dosange, President of Doctors of BC. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me this morning. Are you surprised at all to hear that healthcare workers, and in this case, members of the HEU, are feeling that, burnt, uh, that burnout and considering, in many cases, leaving their profession? I'm not surprised. I am disheartened by this fact but pre-pandemic we knew that we were already in quite a state of burnout at least one-third even prior to the pandemic taking over and I could have just imagined that given the amount of stress and burden all healthcare workers have faced that these are more accurate depiction of what the state of the reality is. And when we talk about the fact that it's pandemic-related burnout, what specifically do you think that looks like in that it's not as though every hospital is overrun with people with COVID, but is it is it workers that are working on, on COVID cases that are doing that on top of other other parts of the healthcare system, dealing with it at home? What do you think specifically is, is, is putting into that or is creating that burnout? I think it's a multifaceted faceted and multi-layered problem and I think you touch on some very significant points. We know that we are at an all-time high for moral distress. We know when the world shut down, the healthcare workers were the ones in the front line and putting themselves, especially in the beginning, at significant risk when we didn't know what was unfolding in the pandemic. So even that distress and that burden and that collective burden and on their own health has been very difficult and challenging. And what we notice is when our patients suffer, we suffer. We have vicarious grief and the burden from the pandemic and the uncertainty. We also notice that the burden from the opioid crisis, when we are seeing young men and women and young people lose their lives in something that we feel should be preventable or we should have better control over, 
those are very difficult things to witness as a provider. So in the, is it getting better, though, in that with our vaccination rates now in the high 80s for second doses, in the 90s for first doses, and with the cases, in many cases, I know there are still people in hospital, but in many cases, at least looking at COVID, it's not as severe. Is that helping then ease that pressure on healthcare workers? Absolutely. I think that our patients and our citizens of this province continuing to do the right thing and the vaccination is absolutely helping our immunity and the contribution that we can do. Those are the things that we have some control over. And the fact that most people are following the provincial health orders and the vaccination, that's fantastic. And that is the ways that people can help us. What does this do for doctors then as well? When we're talking about hospital employees and all parts of the healthcare system, and it would seem that they all need to work together and they all need to be in a healthy state. So what does it do for doctors if other parts, other sectors are feeling like this? Again, like I've said, it just puts an excess pressure to be able to deliver the care in a system which is broken. We are already suffering with excessive workloads long hours and high patient volumes. We have wait times and lack of access for our patients. And we feel when we can't get our patients through this broken system and the help that they need in a timely fashion, it hurts us too. Because after all, we are advocating for and wanting our patients to have the best care. The lack of control and autonomy that we have in decision-making, we may not definitely get to directly influence or impact the decisions that are made in the system, especially in hospital settings. And that coupled with less time spent on meaningful work, which is the value-based work and the reason we got into medicine the first time, is the time that we get to spend with our patients and less time on administrative tasks or the paperwork burden. And addressing burnout requires meaningful system-wide change. We need deliberate and concerted efforts that are needed to promote the conditions that will optimize the state of the current system. How we see this, especially in hospital settings, is if we can get hospital administrators, health authorities, or other stakeholders who make the decisions, then we can have them look at each request or the change that's proposed within the existing environment. They need to consider the ripple effect of any change and how does this affect our nurses, our frontline staff, and our physicians. I feel that doctors need to be included in the decision-making ahead of any plan changes mostly to ensure that those changes support those physicians that are responsible for the care delivery of their patients. Every day we advocate daily for our patients. However, we need to be able to influence and impact the decisions in the system. We are too disconnected and we know what is best for our patients and we want the best outcomes for all of us. What, what systemic changes then are, are you referring to? Simple things would be that We know that we aren't very efficient in many areas. So reducing the number of forms that need to be completed, the amount of checkpoints that need to go through to get a patient's referral made or allow them access to a specialist or specialized care. Let's make virtual care permanent alongside in-person care. We don't always need to see the doctor in the office, and many times a phone call is all that's needed. Let's make all our electronic records in the system have the ability to talk to each other. It's really frustrating at times when you're in one health authority and you're not necessarily able to see the patient's health 
record from another health authority. So if we had a seamless transition into maybe a universal electronic record or a health record in which we knew what our patients were dealing with, that might just be simple things that cause us everyday frustrations and it just increases the burden. Let's also look at paying family doctors in a manner that best suits the way they like to practice. The current fee-for-service structure that has been around for decades is having real trouble keeping up the way doctors today are taking care of their patients. We know that the new technologies, the new drugs, means that patients with chronic conditions are living longer and their care is managed more frequently. There are a number of new contracts available to family doctors that eliminate the headache of the fee-for-service systems, which may work for some doctors, but we know it doesn't work for all. We know there's no one-size-fits-all solution because the needs are changing of our patients. When you talk about that as well, there certainly has been a lot of focus on family doctors and recruiting more doctors to be family doctors. Do you think if that was if that was the focus, if there was some serious attention paid to that in bolstering that part of the healthcare system, would that have a ripple effect and make and, and ease other parts of the system? Absolutely. I think that would definitely be helpful. But the other thing we have to talk about, Simi, is that the risk of attrition. We have to retain the doctors that we have currently. We have to acknowledge that the doctors are burning out who feel they have no choice but to leave their patients without a doctor now. That places an even greater burden on the doctors who remain in the system. So I think we really need to bolster the support to ensure that the family doctors, which is about 50% of the family doctors, 3,000 physicians that are practicing longitudinal care, we need to bolster support to make sure that we keep them, but also to attract other family doctors to be able to do this work with the supports that they need. All right, uh, Dr. DeSange, we'll leave it there for today. But thanks for your time and thanks for talking about this with us today. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. I appreciate you. Enjoy your day. You too. That is Dr. Ramnik DeSange, President of Doctors of BC. This is Mornings with Simi. Thanks for being with us this morning. Well, if you have kids or grandkids, you're likely aware that it can be a major challenge to secure good childcare in this province. A whole host of challenges, and those challenges are there for providers as well. And for more on that, our show contributor, Raji Sohal, is joining us now. Hey, Raji. Hi, Jill. Yeah, there was uh, this article in the Vancouver Sun yesterday that, that really made me think about all the problems associated with this. And it, and it follows one childcare operator, Amanda Worms. Uh, she's in Kelowna. And she applied for one of these, you know, really great sounding government programs to subsidize the costs to facilities. And that would mean that ultimately the families pay less childcare. So she didn't receive her funding on time, and the government's response was that there's a delay in processing for some of the applications. They said that Worms is one of 45 other facilities going through the same problem. But what does that mean for them? So for Worms, it means a loss of fifty to sixty thousand dollars that she was counting on having to operate at a certain time. So she's had to go back to the families at all her centers and say. Okay, your childcare is going to cost an extra three fifty, three hundred and fifty dollars this month, and like that—that's not easy for a lot of working 
and middle class families, right? And Amanda Worm says that, you know, we hear about these programs, they sound so great on paper, but some of them are, are hard for facilities to qualify for. They also take up so much time in the application process. And I've encountered that myself too with our childcare provider because they've let us in on, on the process and how much time they have to spend toiling over it too and making sure they do everything accurately. And uh, you, you don't always know if you're going to get the funding too, if you'll qualify. So Amanda said that they're not always uh, everything that they're chalked up to be. These initiatives come in and they sound wonderful, right? The wage enhancement and all of this $10 a day stuff. We don't have the ability to maintain. We have a field that is in failure. The devastation and the struggle that the majority of providers are experiencing right now. It makes no difference whether you're for-profit, non-profit, in-home, uh, you know, all of all providers are experiencing challenges right now. Yeah, and you can really hear her there, kind of the frustration in doing that paperwork. So was she late in putting her papers in or what uh, did she explain kind of what uh, that bureaucracy, how it was specifically causing this delay for her? Yeah, so some childcare providers have applied for funding but didn't get processed right away because uh, they have asked for an increase. Uh, they have increased their fees. And like Jill, coming out of the pandemic, there were so many more responsibilities and burdens put upon these childcare providers, right? Like with the cleanliness and the, the bleaching of everything and that uh, they had to change routines with drop-offs so that parents weren't coming through the spaces and creating more traffic. All these things ended up amounting to more costs. So a lot of childcare providers did seek an increase in fees. And so it was for that reason that her um, application was slowed down. She might still receive it. Um, that's what she's hoping for. But she said this is just the tip of the iceberg for uh, issues that they've been facing coming through the pandemic. She said right now the staffing crisis is the big one. There's no staff. We are beyond a staffing crisis. We've been in a staffing crisis for 20 years. We have seen this for decades. Like this is not a new thing. Uh, they're extremely underpaid as a general rule and always have been. Um, and now we're seeing a totally different side with the pandemic. Essentially, a lot of these people were forced to continue to work, whether they were fearful or not, because facilities needed to remain open for, you know, essential workers and stuff. Yet they're one of the only industries that were required to stay open that didn't receive, you know, any, any hazard pay or anything like that. And so, you know, we're, we're dealing right now with the reality that there's a bunch of new spaces being created, but there's no educators to fill them. And we have been advocating to government for more than four years about this issue and every single space that they open two more close behind it. At this point, I would say that licensed childcare is the least safe that it's ever been because of the sheer amount of exhaustion that a lot of educators are facing because there is not enough educators to give them any relief whatsoever. Yeah, Jill, you really hear her frustration there. And um, yes, parts of our interview, I mean, even the end of our interview ended in tears. She's at her wits end with uh, not getting enough support and, and not enough appreciation in general 
or what childcare providers have been through through the pandemic. Uh, loads of centers had to close. It's it's such hard work. It's such hard emotional and physical work picking up babies um, and toddlers dealing with their tantrums all day. I mean, I, it's hard enough if you have one kid. Imagine having you know a dozen or two dozen in a room at once. It's it's a lot of work. So. I, I think people who work in childcare centers do it because it's their calling. But Amanda Worms also told me that um, some people get into it out of default. It's a default profession for them. And then they see how hard it is and they run for the hills. Hmm. Interesting. Now, what is the, the ministry saying? Because I understand uh, from reading that story, the ministry says that uh, the the majority of operators uh, have applied and got the funding. No issue. Yeah. It's It's with the operators that are looking for that fee increase. Yeah, exactly. And so for the ones that it did work out for, obviously, that's great. That's wonderful. There was smooth sailing for so many. The ministry did say that uh, these ones that didn't, that are waiting for the increase, that's due to the ministry needing to do their due diligence and research and make sure that there's, you know, no fraudulent claims along the way and that kind of thing, which I can totally appreciate. But I do wonder, like, the child care providers, they can't be left uh alone when they are in these moments where they are waiting for this a big funding to um, come through to to go back to the parents and ask them all for that extra 350 a month I mean certainly I know people who could not uh, who could not afford that just all of a sudden out of their budget so I don't know and she doesn't know either what will be done there but she said that there she just sees the system in general is so fraught and that these programs get heralded as like you know being a fix-all but they're they're often not she mentioned the $10 daycare program that she's she's not looking forward to that ever being fully implemented because she said that she fears quality will go way down because with the $10 daycare system uh, it's unlikely that the province will allow fee increases to occur, uh, and if the, they're not going to incur, then uh, occur, then that means that the quality overall of a daycare can't keep up with uh, with things either. Yeah, it's an interesting point, and I know people in Quebec that have kids in the daycare system, and they don't use the ten dollar a day daycare. Uh, I oh, mean, I wouldn't. They're in the position they don't they don't need to, and uh, obviously not everybody is. But for that exact reason, that they've seen what it, what's happening there, the quality, and it's not what they're comfortable with, so they've opted not to to use that system. So certainly, it's not to suggest that oh, if we only brought that in, it would fix everything. Yeah, exactly. So I was living in Montreal um, during a period where that $10 daycare was in, in place. I didn't have kids yet, obviously, but uh, people around me did. And they did everything they could to uh, for mom and dad to be able to uh, work and maybe work longer hours even to avoid that system. So they tried to get nannies or they tried to do uh, nanny shares and that kind of thing because they found that the $10 daycare, uh, $10 a day daycare system was such poor quality. Uh, this is, childcare is such a huge, uh, it's a huge issue. Obviously, it affects so many families, but it's, there's no easy fix for it. There's no silver bullet. Uh, and having um, little ones, I, I see that firsthand now. I didn't have the appreciation for it that I did before. All right. Uh, interesting story uh, looking at daycare in this province. Raji, thank you so much. Thanks, Jill. That is CKNW contributor Raji Sohal. If you want to comment on this story or anything on your mind today, please do. You can give us a call on the buzz line 604-331-BUZZ or you can email me, Jill, at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. 
Well, we've been talking about this throughout the show and asking you, given the choice, would you like to go back to the office or stay working at home? Well, the Angus Reid Institute is asking that question as well, taking the pulse of Canadians on whether or not they're more comfortable at the home office or do they miss the banter in the work office and want to return? Shachi Curl joins us now, the president of the Angus Reid Institute, to talk more about the findings. Good morning to you. Good morning to you. Uh, This is an interesting one, and given the atmosphere right now with a lot of businesses starting to bring people back. So what did you find? Well, what we find is that among people in this country who have been working from home, either full-time or part-time, and who say they want to stay working at home, we put it to them. Look, what happens if your employer says, you got to come back, and by the way, you've got to come back full-time, no flexibility. And what we find is that more than half of those workers say that they will either quit on the spot or they'll go back, but they'll start looking for another job uh, in order to find a position that better fits what they'd like to do, which is continue working from home. Which seems like a, a bit of a shift when we go back, and I get it, it was new for a lot of people, but when people first started working from home, I remember talking to people saying, I really don't like it, this is not, uh, this doesn't work for me, and then they kind of shifted and people kind of embraced it. I think that's the case. It also has a lot to do with um, where you are in your career and what your working from home setup was like. And so we do see a pretty significant divide between workers in their 20s and early 30s who are often more likely to say, look, uh, in terms of my feeling of connectivity to my colleagues, in terms of feeling in the loop, in terms of liking the setup, I don't like it as much as people who are maybe a little bit older and have been in the job or have been in the role or the position for a long time who are like, this is great, I will never go back to the office again. And, and so some of that has to do with just how comfortable you are in the job, in your role, within the company. Some of it also has to do, however, with possibly your own work-from-home setup. Uh, you know, I've got young colleagues who are in a situation with roommates and cats and all sorts of things going on, and they say, this is awful because we're in a one-bedroom place and everyone's Zooming and it's not great. On the other hand, if you're somebody who's been able to set up your own home office with a door that closes, this is fantastic. So we do see that age divide. Yeah, it is interesting when you say that, too. I've never listened to so many dogs barking and children screaming when doing interviews before, and we just kind of let it go because what can you do? People are working from home, and that's part of working from home. Uh, You also asked about productivity, and you might get a different answer, I would think, from asking the employee or maybe the employer, but what did people say about working from home and whether or not it's had an impact on productivity? A whopping 80%, actually 78%, said that they thought that from a productivity standpoint, the work-from-home situation had been good or great. And to your point, the employers may have a different take on that, but the fact is, Jill, if the productivity wasn't there, if people were genuinely not getting the work done or slacking or whatever, um, employers would not let this have gone on for two years. So I'm inclined to think that, that people, when they self-assess and say, no, I've been getting the stuff done, they've been getting it done.
Hmm. And what about the, you mentioned off the top there with workers saying, look, it's time to come back. You're coming back full time and we're not looking at any kind of, of hybrid model. Is there an appetite, do you think, then for people that people might be more open to coming back, maybe if it was for two days a week or three days a week? That's definitely the case. It's not as though everybody wants to stay at home forever, all the time, full time. There are some who want to do that. But for the most part, the, the biggest appetite or the biggest preference is for some flexibility or for some hybrid, which is either uh, mostly office and some home or mostly home and some office. But I think the days of, of really leaning into literally the Monday to Friday, 9 to 5, taking the morning train and then taking it back again is not something that people are all into but I think there is uh, some desire to, to see their colleagues, see their coworkers, connect face-to-face and in person. Uh, the challenge for employers, of course, is figuring out what days of the week does everyone want to do that? Right. And I would think, too, there, there must be cases where employers have downsized their space or realized, why are we spending all this money to lease this huge office space if there's nobody here? And if they knew that nobody, that, or they knew they weren't going to go back to a full complement. This isn't polling data, it's just anecdotal data, but if you talk to any commercial real estate broker in this town, they will give you a very, very eye-widening view of what's been going on in terms of office space. Um, it's sort of accordion in that first there was no demand and people were dumping out of space. And then maybe six or eight months ago, there was great demand because there was an expectation that the pandemic would be over with the arrival of vaccinations. And then we got Omicron and and another wave of stay home, work from home. Uh, And now I think, um, you know, it would be a great interview for you to do, Jill, just based on things I've picked up and heard. Certainly now there is so much uncertainty around, well, do we hang on to this space? If we're hanging on to space, do we need all of it? What do we do? What's the go forward? Uh, it's going to take, I think, much longer for, for that to settle and, and, and really understand what the long-term implications are. We're still in the middle of it. Right. Uh, I also found the number quite interesting when you asked people uh, whether or not they had left or quit their job during the pandemic, and it seemed like a pretty high number. Well, there are so many, as we know, who left involuntarily for whom the beginning months of the pandemic meant job loss. But what was really interesting was not just those who left or quit or went on to find something new, but those who lost a job or lost hours and used that time to go back and get different kinds of training or learn new skills. So what's happened over the last two years is not only have people exited um, the fields they were in or exited the job they were in and found something else. In many cases, they found something else better or that suited their needs or was a whole different skill set. So we talk about the great resignation a lot, but in fact, I think maybe a better word for it or a better phrase for it is the great reorganization because there has been so much movement below the surface. And again, I don't think we fully understand yet what that means in terms of employment. There's been a lot of short-term focus on we're having trouble finding um, service staff and people in the tourism and hospitality and restaurant industry. That's all very true. But I don't think we, we totally understand the extent to which people have simply um, reorganized the way they want to work, whether that's in terms of skill set or where they work from. 
You asked about finances and as well, and not a huge surprise that a lot of people said CERB was very helpful and it was very necessary, at least in the beginning. But what sense did you get about overall where we are now in the pandemic and how it's affected people's finances? Well, it is very much still a tale of two kinds of, of uh Canadian households. Some people have done really well financially through the pandemic. They've either not had any disruption to to their income levels and to their assets, and and they've been okay. Or it's actually been a time where they've thrived because we know, for example, that if you have assets in the investment markets, it's got money in the money market. Those money markets have have uh, really increased in the last uh, two years. And then on the other side of that line, you have people who have struggled profoundly. And these are folks who were already in lower income situations, the loss of jobs, the loss of work, the uncertainty, and the, the fact that they did not, uh, they, they weren't holding a lot of assets, whether it was a home or anything else to begin with, um, means that the, the last two years have been challenging for them. They've been a real source of anxiety. Uh, and just as we start to come out of the pandemic uh, being hit with some record high inflation, something that since the, the invasion of Ukraine, we haven't been talking as much about in terms of Canadian consumers and inflation. That's just one more thing for many of these households to have to deal with. I am sure we are going to be talking about inflation in the near future and uh, we'll definitely talking about that and what's happening with that. We'll have to leave it there for today, though. Shachi, thank you so much for your time. Great chatting with you. Thanks for having me, Jill.